Welcome to Beyond the Code, the podcast where industry experts and brilliant legal minds discuss the impact of new emerging technologies. I'm your host, Yitzi Hammer, a lawyer and tech enthusiast. Join us as we explore the legal, regulatory, and ethical issues surrounding AI, blockchain, and more. Get ready to go beyond the code and stay ahead of the game. So you were saying about market design. Right. So oh, since design. we started, maybe maybe just introduce yourself. Cool. I'm Scott Commoners. Uh, I teach in the Entrepreneurial Management Unit at Harvard Business School and the Department of Economics at Harvard University. And I'm also a research partner at A16Z Crypto. And I, uh, you know, in my spare time spend, you know, way too much time, uh, you know, sort of hanging out in, in every imaginable NFT community that I can discover and also write and, uh, cr- you know, sort of create and solve uh, puzzles, it's sort of like, uh, enigmatic puzzles where a lot of the the challenge is just in figuring out even what the puzzle wants you to do to solve it. Like what what is even a solution going to look like? Um, and then we were just talking about market design, which is my principal. Well, I was, I was saying how uh, my pet peeve with academics is that they kind of just live in their papers and in theories and um, very, very little do they get down to the practicality of what they're talking about. Um, but when I decided to interview, I Googled market design to see what it is you actually do. And it turns out that market design is the application of economic theory to, to real world problems. So it's um, very opportune that we're, that we're speaking. And I'm, I'm very curious to learn more about uh, the type of stuff that you um, research and teach about and uh, certainly what you're doing within the crypto space. And you're, you're exactly right about market design. It's taking theory into practice and as a result of that, you know, it's cool. First of all, it's it's awesome at some level, even just to be able to think of economics and computer science and sort of all of these related disciplines wrapped together as a tool for engineering, as, as a way of sort of figuring out how the world could work better rather than just try to understand how the world works today, right? Like, you know, economics is an incredibly powerful toolkit for understanding how the world does work, but market design sort of takes it a step further to ask, you know, could we use our understanding and, and what we know about incentives and, you know, and resource allocation and all of these different, you know, economic insight categories, can we use it to make the world work even better? And the fun thing about that, you know, intellectually, you know, over and above being able to, to solve actual problems, it, it forces you to think even more critically about theory, right? Like to, to take theory into practice, you have to build different types of models. You have to, you know, map much more directly to the, to an individual application. Um, and that means it's a, it's, I don't know, for me, it's been just a fascinating creative challenge as well as, you know, sort of an extraordinary opportunity to, you know, hopefully do a little bit of good. And, and, and on the topic of doing good, I understand that you already have done quite a bit of good, um, <laughs> vis-a-vis kidney transplants and applying market design theories to kidney transplant exchanges. I mean, maybe you could explain to me a little bit more because I didn't fully understand. Um, and then I read a bit of your paper from 2017 and, you know, I understood at least on a th- in theoretical sense, but not how that actually played out in practice. Awesome. 
Um, well, first of all, let me clarify. I myself have never actually worked on kidney exchange and, and transplantation, um, although a lot of my colleagues have. Um, but certainly it's been one of the biggest successes of market design, um, you know, literally saving, you know, God, I don't even know the order of magnitude at this point tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives. Let me see if I understood. Basically, um, you have donors that are allocated uh, nationally to, um, speci to specific individuals who need a kin kidney transplant, but they don't always match up for whatever reason. So the idea basically is to extend that to an international scale and then for insurers or healthcare providers to be able to finance the international exchange of kidneys in order to save on dialysis, which is more expensive than shipping somebody's kidney internationally. Did, did I get Great. it? Basically? So, so that's one. So, so how, did, how, does, but it took a how long does market time to get design, so, how does market design yeah. facilitate that? And how maybe, okay, so, and this was something that I was thinking when I read your paper, I'm not sure if you were going in that direction. How could blockchain perhaps add another layer to that and 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 really enable it to be oh, more super seamless. interesting okay so I, I i will give answers to all of those questions but you're starting us you know in i don't know 2015 16 something like that and and let me pull us back to you know 2004 you know maybe even early 2000s so first of all just what is kidney exchange why does this even make sense in context you what why why would you trade kidneys. That sounds kind of odd. Um, so exactly as you said, sometimes, you know, so first of all, kidney disease uh, is eventually fatal, right? Like you, you can't live without functioning kidneys over fully, you know, sort of like fully extended periods of time. Um, and the treatment when you have uh, end stage renal disease as, you know, sort of going, uh, you know, is dialysis, which is we sort of require you require more and more and more of it, and it's very unpleasant. the The alternate treatment is to get a transplanted kidney, so to get a replacement. And also, I should say a, a second disclaimer. You know, as I said, I, I haven't worked on this directly, so I'm going to be sort of telling you about some of the the work that's been done. But I am not an expert on kidney exchange specifically, and I'm certainly not a doctor, so I'm going to like probably botch at least one term here. So, so apologies in advance. But okay. Um, but lots of people have donors who in one fashion or another are incompatible with them. Maybe they have a spouse who, um, you know, who has just a different blood type, their type A, their spouse is type B. And so, you know, people will show up and, and have a partner or, or some family member or friend or something who wants to donate to them, but for whatever reason can't, but is able to donate a kidney. It's not that they're medically unable to donate. Um, and so, this idea was formed, uh, and I think if I recall correctly, the very first like one of these on record, like actually was was like patients and and their their prospective donors figuring it out in like the waiting room, like realizing that they you know like type you know one was a type A patient with a type B donor, one was a type B patient with a type A donor, and like they realized they could swap, and so here we have an exchange opportunity, right? Like. Um, it, if you have an incompatible donor, you could imagine that you could find a different patient with an incompatible donor, but with your donors being mutually compatible and then 
you know, trade. You have like a, you have a kidney exchange. You, you basically trade donors. And that started like that, that just simple concept and a couple of like individual examples of it having happened started you know, researchers thinking about, you know, well, how could you do that at scale? How could you, you know, make those exchanges happen in a way that, that maximizes the number of transplants that, that occur, that sort of saves as many people as possible. Um, and again, just as a footnote, right, um, one can also receive transplant kidneys from a deceased donor. Um, you know, if you're, this is someone who in one fashion or another is an organ donor, um, but there is undersupply, right? Kidney disease is so pervasive that even like, you know, if you were able to transplant like every deceased donor kidney available, uh, at least in the United States, um, you get nowhere near uh, managing to get a transplant for everyone who needs one. And so there's real, you know, this is a, you know, a constrained resource situation. It's what economics is sort of well optimized for thinking about economics and operations research and sort of the, the some branches of computer science all together, right? Like they're about thinking about how do we solve constrained resource allocation problems to maximize value? And, you know, Al Roth and uh, Typhoon Sunmez and Utku Unver wrote a series of papers that sort of explored this, that sort of said, look, suppose we had, you know, a bunch of patient donor pairs and we were trying to figure out like, how do you do these exchanges to, to ensure that the largest number of transplants uh, possible happens? How would we actually do that? And what's fascinating about it is that this is a, an academic literature that has evolved tremendously over what's almost, I guess now two decades, but it starts with like very simple fundamental models. And then it went through sequential evolutions driven by how, like, like it was, they sort of pointed out ideas, practitioners were like, oh my gosh, this is great. Like, let's start to like, think about how to integrate this into practice. And that immediately fed back into new theory, exactly like we were talking about at the beginning of the session. So for example, the original paper um, proposed, uh, you know, an algorithm for or a procedure for deciding like who should, you know, which patients and donors should be matched that could have the problem that it resulted in arbitrarily long chains or sorry, um, cycles rather. So, you know, you might have patient donor pair one, you know, their donor donates to pair two, the, pair two's donor donates to pair three, pair three to four or five, six, you know, sort of like 20, you know, patient and donor pairs in a cycle, which sounds great you know, no problem. That's awesome. You know, 20, 20 patient donor pairs match. That sounds good until you realize that that means you have to have, uh, I guess, 40 simultaneous operating rooms reasonably close to each other. Because at least in the United States, it's not possible to contract over a kidney. You can't write, a, you know, a, a, nor necessarily for, for fairness reasons or whatever would you want to write a contract that says, you know, after your donor donates to, to my patient, then my donor donates to yours or something of the sort, right? Like what happens if your donor donates to, to my patient and then, you know, their donor gets so, sick, yeah. you know, like is, you know, discovered to have some sort of like blood clotting disorder or something like, and, and can't donate. Well, now your donor has given up a kidney um, but the patient is no better off and there's, there's no solution to this. And so the only way to do these exchanges, at least at the outset, and, and as I say, things evolved, they, they, they innovated, but at the very beginning, the idea was just doing like simultaneous surgeries, right? So if like, there's a problem with, you know, with, with, you know, either donor or either patient, they can like stop everything sort of all at once. 
And so the first thing they said was like, look, we can't do these 20 cycles. Um, all we can really do is pairwise exchanges. So, so four operating rooms simultaneously, you know, just a patient donor pair meets, you know, trades with patient donor pair. And that motivated a new paper that asked, you know, the simple question of, well, how well can we do with just pairwise exchanges and how should we do that? And it turns out that like some very famous well-known machinery from a, a branch of math called graph theory uh, factors in that somehow the, the structure of blood types in the human, like the like human blood types, this is like sort of a, a surreal mathematical miracle. Um, the structure of human blood types creates a very specific layout of like how you want to do the matching. And it depends on like some, some like, classic decomposition theorem from graph theory. But then they start asking the question, well, like, okay, well, how much better could you do if you allowed longer cycles? And there was this, another beautiful paper, same, same three um, scholars that showed that actually three-way trades, so like three patient donor pairs gets you almost as far as you, you, you could go, right? So like you, you never really need these 20 cycles. You, you might need three cycles to get, or doing three cycles gets you close. And I think you need a maximum of four cycles or something like that. And so then, you know, doctors started saying, okay, well, maybe we could do six simultaneous surgeries instead of four, right? If, if, this, if this will enable us to match many more people, like, you know, that, that's, that's something we can figure out here. Um, and so the early wave of kidney exchange research was a lot of like very sort of oddly specific math, right? This math depended on the structure of the human blood type graph to figure out like how you would match the most patient donor pairs at a, at a given time. But then meanwhile, you know, sort of other innovations were happening and there were something else that sometimes happens is that a completely altruistic donor just decides to donate a kidney for whatever reason. Like not, not with a specific patient in mind, but they just, you know, sort of decide this is something I want to do. I, you know, I, I want to save a life, just like someone might become a bone marrow donor because they want to try and save a life. Like, and the realization there so was that this presents an extraordinary new opportunity. So with these cyclic trades, right, the pairwise exchange and the triple trades or three pair exchanges, you have to do all the surgeries simultaneously because, you know, you, um, you know, because you sort of like can't use one patient's donor until you know that you're going to be able to give them a kidney from one of the other donors. But when someone just altruistically donates, it can kick off a chain. And so it's, you know, you could take that donor and match them to a patient who is, um, you know, who has a willing but incompatible donor. And then their donor can pay it forward, right? You can sort of like, you know, take that donor no and then attached. match them to a patient who has it. Exactly. And, and, you, and you start building mm -hmm. a chain. And if at some point you reach a point where like, you know, the donor can't donate, right? Maybe they were, you know, uh, again, they get, they get really sick in between, you know, sort of their patient receiving a kidney and, and when they were set up to donate. That's very sad, right? It's it you know you, you'd you like to keep the chain go going on with the next further, one. but but it's it, but it's not the same type of loss, right? Like you do, um, and in the meantime, what what this does that's really special is it breaks the need to do everything simultaneously. You can even like wait for a really good match for each donor to come along, and so this created this opportunity for uh, you know and, and again similarly, there's been research to understand how to structure and how to optimize these kidney exchange chains 
where like an altruistic donor kicks off this like long sequence of donations flowing out into the future. Um, and, and some of these have like famously gone on for, for many, many years, like, you know, chains that run over a period of years. And maybe like, you know, then you have a donor who turns out to be very hard to match. And even so, like sometimes years later, you find a good match for them and, and they're, they're willing to keep the chain going. Um, and so then, as you mentioned, there's this, you know, new, I mean, and that, that sort of work was really going on mostly when I it was new, especially, or, or a major focus, I would say when I was in grad school. So that was like, you know, 2009, you know, sort of 2010, 2011 area, trying to understand how these chains work. And it turns out that they're particularly important for helping to match patients who are really hard to match, right? That like somehow they, 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 they somehow help um, solve the possibility, solve for the problem that some patients are very sensitive to a lot of different, you know, um, here, here's where my lack of medical knowledge is really going to show, right? It's like you have some sort of like protein sensitivity that means that like almost every donor is not a good match for you. And these chains um, somehow like help address that problem and help ma match the really difficult to match patients. Um, and note, by the way, sorry, and note that that's especially important because over time, the patients who are harder to match become a larger and larger fraction of the pool, all else equal, right? Because the easier runs to match, you find matches they and they go move out. on. Yeah. Exactly. And so it actually is like particularly important to look for interventions that help match the harder to match patients. Not, you know, not just because like, you know, it's harder. And so like you have to work harder and you should work harder at it, but like it's actually becomes a growing fraction of the, the population that need transplants. Um, but you asked about, so that, that takes us, you know, to about when I was in grad school. And then soon after that, um, Al Roth, along with uh, a number of other collaborators, by the way, and, and I've, I've been, I've been citing the economists, but there's a huge group of, uh, medical researchers and, and, and transplant surgeons involved in this as well. And, um, you know, it's been a lot of collaboration, uh, like one of the one of them who's been very central is, is Mike Reese. There's been a lot of collaboration back and forth between, you know, the economics researchers and, as I say, operations research scholars, computer scientists, and these doctors who actually put this stuff into practice literally, and and can give the feedback on like what works and and also have a lot more of the you know sort of. I don't know, like the management expertise in this context, right? Like the building, you know, the U.S. now has like a, a national kidney exchange network and like building national networks requires coalitions of like-minded transplant surgeons and stuff. And, and so it's also really important to think about economics, you know, applied in a real world context, not just needing to understand like real world factors, like the human blood type graph, but also by the way, I keep saying human blood type graph. It's like, this is the structure of which blood types can donate to each other. So like, O can donate to everybody. A and B can donate to each other or to AB and, and AB can only donate to AB. Um, but also like the, the sort of social and, and institutional and, and sometimes even political context around the market. But okay, sorry. All of that as the lead for what you ask about. With you're going, you're going like all over the place, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I'm I'm finally getting the answer to your original question, so I promise I'll I'll do a quick answer to that, and then we'll uh, and then you're we'll. You're very we'll, much we'll, an we'll, academic. Absolutely, one hundred percent. 
The uh, I'm like I'm a yeah, business trip, guy, right? you, you know. Like, like you I'm ask- always like I want to <laughs> cut cut to the chase. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, go I, okay. Go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, I, I don't, quick, I'm, quick I'm answer. Not interrupting. Quick answer. So I just I want to talk about, about a lot of stuff with you. I want to get I want to get to a sixteen z. I want to get to NFTs. I want to get to blockchain, crypto. I want to get to kidneys and <laughs> blockchain. We, we're, we're like we're talking entirely about kidney exchange right now. We haven't said a word about crypto. Um, the uh, so, but okay, but international kidney exchange. Very quickly, the idea is, um that there are places that don't have organized transplant infrastructure or, or the resources to, to manage transplantation at scale. And meanwhile, um, in the United States, the alternative, as I said, to, to getting a transplant is being on dialysis. And so, and it turns out that for a bunch of market institutional reasons, dialysis is extraordinarily expensive. Um, and and for, impractical as well. I mean, I've spoken to some oh, dialysis absolutely. patients like to, to go schlep yourself out there and to have to, you know, endure the dialysis process is, is absolutely is uncomfortable and, and like you said, expensive and just impractical generally. Absolutely. No, no, no. Like, like you know, one, one definitely would rather have transplantation, but also the insurers would rather have transplantation, right? Like, you know, all of the people who like help finance dialysis. It turns out transplantation is a much more cost-effective solution in addition to a, a better one from a health perspective. And in fact, it's so much more cost-effective that you can do essentially two transplantations for the cost of, of one person's dialysis. Wow. And so, um, you know, Roth and, and uh, Afshin Niksad and, and Muhammad Akbarpour, and I'm blanking on the other two authors, um, or other couple of authors, apologies. Um, <laughs> Well, we'll we'll put the citation. We'll we'll put the full citation in the, in the, uh, in the podcast description or something. Maybe um, observed that you could basically you could find a patient donor pair from a place that doesn't have enough transplant infrastructure, bring them to the United States, do a kidney exchange with a patient, you know, with a um, you know a, a, a mismatched patient, you know, a, a you know an incompatible patient donor pair. And then send the other patient back to her, you know, to their home country with even an escrow fund to pay for ongoing medical care and like, you know, the, there's a there's a, all for a medicine you have to take dialysis. afterwards. But like exactly. All for the cost, like all for the savings of dialysis on the US patient. Wow. And so this creates like basically like a you know a financial market, you know, like a like a financing mechanism mm-hmm. for increasing transplants worldwide. Um, and also has been a source for, for international collaboration. Um, uh, there have been uh, U.S.-Mexico, um, uh, you know, sort of international kidney exchanges. And I believe, I don't remember the, the specific details, but there's also some Israeli-Arab one, I believe. Um, and, and so it's, it's fascinating yeah. that it's like sort of simultaneously like a, you know, it, it, it's been a, a opportunity to save lives, save money, and do international diplomacy sort of all in, in one category at once. Um, and then, oh, and then market you asked design. about, exactly, yeah, and this is, this is what it's market like to be a design market designer. and blockchain. <laughs> right, okay, Which and then you asked about blockchain and kidneys. Right, yes. and critical crypto segue, you asked about blockchains and kidneys. Um, so uh, I am not going to sit here and say everyone should have their all of their organs on the blockchain. That sounds like a terrible, uh, you know, sort of uh, tagline. But one challenge, as I mentioned, is that uh, 
you know, you can't, at least in the United States, you can't write a contract over a kidney. You, you, there, there's no way to, you know, you, you can't exchange well, a kidney the reason for valuable for, consideration. Reason for that? What's the reason uh, for that? Well, it, it's, it's, it's by law. Um, and I believe, in fact, the, the law had to be like explicitly clarified to allow kidney exchange because it wasn't clear when people started doing these things at scale whether it was or was not contracting. And so they, they, they literally like amended this like National Organ Transplantation Act wow. to clarify that, uh, you know, kidney exchange was not ruled out by, by this ruling or by this, this law. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I, I don't have a, I don't claim to be the, the right type of expert or philosopher to sort of understand why that is you know, sort of the, the regime that was chosen, but it's the regime that's been chosen almost, you know, the legal regime that's been chosen almost everywhere in the world, right? Like there, there is, uh, you know, there's virtually nowhere where you can buy or sell a kidney. Um, but what's been pointed out is that there's still this proper, you know, problem, and you, you know, this this observation that if you do these non-directed donor chains, you can push much further into the future, right? That you can sort of you can match more people because you you free the the need you, you free yourself from the need to have the the matched patients and donors show up at the same time, right? That you can sort of you know ma you know match a donor to a patient, then have their donor wait for a really good match and so forth. Extending that insight, it turns out that if you had a way to have people, you know, sort of show up and like, you know, basically get into queues, right? Sort of, you know, donors are donors are in queues by blood type and, and tissue type, patients are in queues by blood type and tissue type. And like, just, you know, whenever your donor donates, you know, they do. And like, you know, when, when you're, you know, when you've had a donor donate, you're in this queue and you, you get whatever sort of the next eligible or, you know, the first eligible one that, that you're at the front of the queue for is like, this idea of an effect having like a token, like a, you know, sort of donor has donated or like history token, um, you know, as a way of, of paying a donation forward, you know, in, in a intertemporal way, um, that actually there, there's, there's good evidence um, that that would enable yet more transplants, that it would sort of, it, it would free, like freeing the need for the market to mostly clear simultaneously would be really, really helpful in terms of increasing total overall transplantation. And so in that sense, again, like this is this, I don't, I don't think we're ever going to see, the, or who knows, I would not expect that we see this embedded on a, on a blockchain, unless that's just a simple infrastructure mechanism to do it. And I don't know whether we're ever going to see it from a policy perspective either, but at least in principle, uh, people have proposed that there should be various forms of like, you know, tokens as a way of paying it forward in, in kidney exchange. So that'll be our blockchain segue. <laughs> Okay, so I, I jotted down like a few questions that I wanted to ask you. Uh, I think we've touched on the first one, uh, your work on kidney exchange programs. And another one of the things that we uh, like to speak about on this podcast is AI. <laughs> what else? Amazing. It's, uh, it's all anybody's talking about today. Um, <laughs> but we've had some, some very in interesting conversations with people in the industry, both um, academics and, um, and entrepreneurs. And I'm interested in understanding how you see AI evolving within these fields that we're talking about. And I want to understand a bit more about like how you came into crypto at what point, like what's your sort of uh, genesis block, so to speak. <laughs> um, and, That's a uh, great line. I've, I've never heard someone say that before. That's a great line. What's your genesis block? By the way, Genesis Block, I have to attribute and give credit to Jacob Robinson, who's a, a, a friend and a, and a 
and a Canadian lawyer, and he has this great podcast. You should give it a listen. It's called Law of Code, and he basically just interviews lawyers in the blockchain space, and he always starts out with, what's your Genesis block? So I got to give, give credit where, where credit is due. Okay. Um, wow. There were a bunch of different questions there. Which order should we go in? Um, I guess, so I'll do the Genesis block one first. Cause that's, you know, as a, as a market designer, um, in some sense, I'm literally always looking for new to better understand, you know, sort of new ways of creating markets and, and managing transactions and exchanges and, you know, and sort of, understanding in particular how technology and incentives shape markets and, and entrepreneurship. And so in that sense, you know, crypto is sort of straight down home plate. Um, it's something I've been aware of and, and thought about to some degree, essentially since, you know, soon after uh, the original Nakamoto paper, uh, because, you know, in part one of my earliest and, and and closest advisors and mentors, uh, Susan Athey, who was an undergraduate advisor and then a graduate advisor, and and you know now a you know still a you know a mentor and a and a colleague and extraordinary friend uh, and collaborator. We've, you know we've we've written papers together. Um, she was one of the earliest Bitcoin miners, like back in the day when you could like be mining Bitcoin in your office, like on on your your computer, like. And I don't remember the precise like details of this story, but like somehow she like found that discovered this and was like, oh, that's cool. Like, you know, I, I want to try it. And so, you know, there was like a small conversation around crypto, you know, when I was in grad school, um, as it was like emerging and like I started my PhD in 2009, right? It was like, you know, very, very early days. And then, you know, I, I went to the University of Chicago. Um, I was a research scholar at the Becker Friedman Institute. And then uh, came back to Harvard and joined the Society of Fellows. And in both of those contexts, I was, um, you know, like I, I was one of the people that students would come to to like pitch their various crypto startups because you know you go to the market design professors. This is this is like you know if you want to figure out whether your incentive design business model is is a good idea, you know you got to find the professors who who think about that. And the market designers were the ones who heard. I'm like I'm sure. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure people brought, you know, like, you know, many, many more people brought their ideas to, to, to Susan. Um, but I, but I at least got some of them. And what's really funny about it was I was super negative on the whole thing. And like, to be fair, I think I was right on, you know, on, on the points that people were focused on then. You were, you were, A, what, what were people focused on then? Because, you know, I mean, I, I came at it, I, I was a law student. I was, I was coming at it initially from a tax perspective, um, which was, you know, the first thing that I thought was exciting about it. Super cool. Um, I was doing a tax seminar at the time and I was like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting from an <laughs> right, AML like, perspective. What, what are these assets, right? Like, how do you think uh, but about I'm curious, the tax perspective? <laughs> like, so I'm curious what, yeah. you know, what you were hearing, what, what, what the, uh, what the consensus was at the time and, um, and why you were, why you were against it and why you think you were right or for whatever reasons you were yeah, against it so and why you think you're right for that. At the time I was getting pitch after pitch after pitch of here is this idea to decentralize a thing simply for the sake of decentralizing it. 
And like the thing could you moved around. There were there were all manner of varieties of like thing that it could you know that it was. But like fundamentally, it was all about decentralizing something that simply because it was centralized and now could be decentralized. And that was like it, it's similar to what we're we're experiencing now. We had issuing a token exactly. just for the sake of issuing a token. Like I I often have clients who are like we're going to have a token. I'm like, why? It doesn't make any sense for your platform. Exactly. I, I want a token. <laughs> so there's like a, a there, there's a lot of things are being over tokenized and, and shouldn't be. And now we're like over dowing things. Like people are just exactly. structuring DAOs for the hell of it. Um, most of the time that it's not even really a DAO, but people are like, Oh, we should, we should turn this into a DAO, you know, like our, our Sunday book club, like it should be a DAO. Um, we should, we should have exactly. tokens we, we, we and need, we need like governance processes to determine which books are going to be read. <laughs> like, you know, there'll, there'll be earnings per page. Yes. No, exactly. Right. And like, <laughs> you know, and uh, it was very, it was very bizarre. Right. And you, you'd explain to people, look, you know, Decentralization is not without cost, right? In most contexts, it's harder to get stuff done in decentralized ways. It's slower. It like requires effort, energy, like you know, sort of infrastructure to support security. Uh, you know, it's a reason proof of work is you know very very costly, and it's immutable. Okay. Right? Yeah. No, and it's immutable. Like like whatever you put out there is there forever. So like. You, you let's really think if these are things that we need to have on chain you know many things should be um but many things just just don't exactly. need to be and, and certainly shouldn't be and so i was like mostly just a super skeptic i was like wow you know I'm, I'm not really like focused on this area you know it wasn't wasn't what i was working on mainly but i was following it casually and i was getting lots of queries about it and like every idea i was being pitched on i was just like look there is no reason to decentralize this thing like i just don't understand and so I was on record as like a pretty serious skeptic um, for years, uh, a naysayer. Although I did, I met Vitalik at a conference, you know, strange sequence of events. Uh, like he and I were like basically the only people at the place where they, they were serving breakfast at like six in the morning or something. And so I had breakfast with Vitalik and I walked away. I was like, wow, that guy's like super smart. This Ethereum thing sounds pretty cool. Like, you know, and, and of course, because I'm a professor and don't like, you know, you know, and, 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 you know, what, what do professors value? Um, you know, my thought at the time was, wow, I should like really pay attention to this because maybe one day I'm going to like want to teach something in my class about Ethereum, right? Like, you know, maybe I'm going to want to write a case study or something like, you know, it's, this could be like a really interesting, like teaching example of something. Um, you know, um, I, I never in, the, in a million years would have predicted that, uh, you know, that, that I would not just be like, you know, teaching about Ethereum, but you know, own at least a, you know, a, exactly like a, a, a sort of a, a DGEN's collection of, of, you know, many digital assets control, you know, sort of managed on it. Um, but, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but what really like sort of, you asked about the Genesis block, what really got me, at, you know, like excited about crypto, um, you know, I have a very good friend named Christian Catalini, who uh, founded the MIT Crypto Economics Lab. Uh, and, you know, we would get together, like, you know, every so often to, like, talk about what was good, you know, like, you know, he's, he's very, you know, very crypto focused. He founded the Crypto Economics Lab um, and, and sort of interested in it both as a tool for market design and sort of like sort of at, as it reflects the economics of innovation and technology and so forth. Um, and 
we get together every so often and talk about what was going on. And one time we get together and it's like, okay, I know you're like super skeptical about all this stuff, but I've, I have an application that I think you're really going to be excited by. And, and you know, you should, you should come help think about it. And that was uh, what became Libra slash DM, Facebook's cryptocurrency initiative. Um, <laughs> May it rest in peace. You know, um, the, uh, there, there are lots of, there are lots of like learnings and, and products being built off of the various bits of that code base and so forth. And like, you know, and so in, in, in all of those senses, I think the, uh, the, the vision is very much alive, but from an intellectual perspective, again, right. It, and, and from a, from a value creation perspective, the idea that you could have decentralized transaction infrastructure for the internet and, and first of all, I mean, just the opportunity is extraordinary. And second of all, and, and I'll say, realizing that that was an extraordinary opportunity made me realize also that like all of these various cryptocurrencies and sort of like other, you know, sort of crypto platforms that I had been very, very skeptical of for what, half a decade or something also could potentially serve this purpose, right? Like I'd sort of, it's funny, right? Like one talks about these things for payments. But I sort of hadn't ever quite focused on the idea that, you know, maybe such a thing actually could be sort of the, the payment infrastructure level of the internet or something at that level. Um, but the thing that's really special about that application is that on the one hand, the decentralization makes it, you know, is, is sort of necessary. The same way you want like the, you know, the internet servers to be decentralized, right? You want like no one to control the payment rails, like like global payment rails of the internet, if, if you can have that be the case. Not because, you know, again, because you're worried about, you know, censorship and, and expropriation and so forth. Not that it's like not good to have somebody like managing payment networks and infrastructure, right? Like it's, you, know, you, you, you pay a big cost by making this thing decentralized even partially decentralized. But the reason you're, you're willing to pay that cost, at least in principle, is in order to make it something that is like safe and, and, and accessible. But then meanwhile, the other thing that's really cool about it, that was really exciting to me about that application, is it makes it possible to extrapolate from places with really strong institutions to places with weaker ones, right? That you can sort of leverage you know, legal protections in the place where a wallet application is based in order to like provide protection of transaction security and, uh, you know, in digital currency in places that, that don't have the same types of, of legal protections. And so in that sense, you can sort of, um, you can simultaneously like create a lower friction and, and more inclusive financial rail system but also use it to sort of take, to, to borrow the best, you know, the best of our like sort of current finance system and current institutions and, and export them or, or extrapolate them. It's not even really exporting, they don't move, but extrapolate them to everywhere. And that seemed really cool. And so um, Christian and, uh, and one of my then grad students, uh, he's now a professor at Stanford, uh, Ravi Jagadisan, and I spent a lot of time thinking about the sort of the research questions around like, how would this sort of thing actually work in practice? And along the way, like questions about like, you know, how do you make these sorts of networks secure at scale and stuff like that? Um, 
And so that was when I really like started thinking about this stuff seriously and like understanding its its market design potential. Um, you know, printed printed the Genesis block. Um, fun fact, though, you know, while this was going on, I was mostly, you know, it was, it was still sort of like a secret project, right? And so early on, I was like started going to crypto conferences, but I, you know, was keeping a posture of like being there as a skeptic, which was kind of funny, right? Like I'm standing in the back, like, you know, you know, sort of not quite heckling, but being like grumpy, like, you know, really like, you know, <laughs> do you really think this thing is robust to this problem? Like, you know, and if so, why? Like, um, you know, but, uh, but that, that was, that was fun. It's always, it's always cool to play a role for a year or so. <laughs> um, you know, the crotchety skeptic who secretly has been crypto pilled. Um, Okay, I know you wanted like pithy answers, but we haven't said a word about NFTs. Should we talk about NFTs for a second? You just gave me your Genesis block in uh, crypto generally, um, but now tell me how you fell into NFTs and why you, like me, are like one of the only people who <laughs> still thinks NFTs are cool, and <laughs> uh, maybe some of the future applications Great. of NFT technology, and also uh, what you're doing with. Uh, a16z i saw you took the other side two trip yesterday so curious to hear what your, what your <laughs> dgen thoughts were there um, all right yes your nft, NFT so genesis this is very funny. um so christian and ravi and i wrote an article uh in project syndicate where we briefly discussed nfts and we made the following point about nfts by the way also i've been aware of since 2017 18. like i was i was aware of crypto kitties uh, a collaborator of mine and I literally almost like we, we got so far as thinking through the details of how it would work to launch an NFT project as part of a research study. Like we, we like talked to and then we were like, yeah, this isn't interesting enough. So we, we skipped it, you know, whoops, you know, maybe, maybe could have like, you know, minted the, uh, you know, uh, the research punks or whatever. Um, you know, it's funny, like, again, like what part of being an academic is often like, you know, every, every time, you go back and read your own writing, you realize you didn't understand it deeply enough at the time you wrote it, right? Like, like all of research is about understanding things deeply. And like, you're constantly, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're lucky, you're getting deeper and deeper and deeper understanding. And a consequence of that is that you realize like you, you know, every so often you realize you don't understand anything at all and you have to start again. So here we wrote the, you know, a, you know, a couple of paragraphs in which we said, look, what's really interesting about NFTs is that unlike cryptocurrencies, well, sorry, cryptocurrencies, which is mostly what the article was about, have this property that in order for a currency to be valuable, lots of people have to all agree that it has value, right? Like what makes dollars useful is that many, many people all over the world will exchange dollars for money, right? Like they, they all sort of agree, or sorry, for, for objects, goods or services, they all agree that dollars they, are money. They attribute right? value. They all to attribute it. value to dollars. Mm -hmm. In order for any cryptocurrency to become a medium of exchange, it sort of has to be the same. It has to be that very large numbers of people attribute value to it so that they're willing to exchange goods or services for it and treat it as money. And so in this funny way, cryptocurrencies sort of like gain value only once they get a very, very large scale acceptance. And what we pointed out in this article was that NFTs sort of do the opposite, right? Like with an NFT, you don't actually need everyone in the world to agree that this thing is valuable. In fact, you just need a very small number of people to agree that it's valuable. And then the value can spin out from there as more and more people decide they want to own the asset. And so like, for example, if you think about the like right-click save as meme, right? It's like if the vast majority of people in the world think that 
they can just right click and save an image and, and, and now they've taken it or whatever. It sort of doesn't matter so long as all the people who might want to own the image agree that the NFT represents ownership, right? Like, you know, if there are 10 people in the world who want to buy a given artist's work and all 10 of them are in agreement that owning the NFT is the way you quote unquote own the author's work, then who cares about all the rest of the people in the world, right? There, there, there's a market of 10 people, you know, they attribute value to this token and that's how the token starts to take on its value. I mean, ultimately that's anything. Absolutely. Is, it could be brought down to like a social contract. Absolutely, absolutely. But, but critically here, you only need that agreement among the people who might want to own the asset. Whereas, you know, with, with currencies, you need like widespread agreement because you're sort of expecting everyone to exchange things for the asset. And, and with NFTs, then you can sort of start with this core community and spin outwards. And so we wrote those words and like, you know, I like to think that was like a, you know, a, a cool insight. I don't, I'm not even sure I can claim it was an original insight, but like we, we sort of tried to explain that principle in, in contrast with sort of some of the things about how, how cryptocurrencies work. And then like, and that was like early 2021. And then in parallel, sort of the, the wackiest thing happened, which is I, I was writing a puzzle column for Bloomberg Opinion. And we tried to make the puzzles themed around things that were in the news and of interest to Bloomberg readers. And needless to say, crypto was, was in that category. And so we actually did two different puzzles themed around NFTs. One of them around the time of the, the major Beeple sale in early 2021 uh, was about sort of like, you know, you know, finding this like cryptic art hidden in, you know, sort of out in plain sight. Uh, and then towards the end of the summer, maybe middle of the summer, it might've been like July or something. Uh, as the PFP projects were really taking off, there was that New Yorker article about the Board Ape Yacht Club. Um, I did one about PFPs, the, the, you know, and, and we mentioned in that, you know, a bunch of the, the projects in that article. Um, and one of the ones we mentioned was Subducks. And some people from Subducks reached out and said, hey, like, you know, we're reading this article. We've like looked you up online. We think you would really get this. Like, we, we actually think you would like really enjoy it. Um, and I was like, interesting. And they're like, you should join our Discord. Like, come check it out. And I joined the Discord. Um, you know, and, and, and two people from the community, uh, Marklar and, and DJ, like created, you know, subduckified, you know, Scott images um, that, we, that we later, like, you know, sort of cited in some future edition of the column. Like, you know, I think the first um, commoners conundrums uh, fan art in history. Um, thank you guys, shout outs. Um, but as I was like starting to explore this and eventually like one of my, my very good friends, uh, Far helped me actually get my first NFT, which was the Subduck. Um, you know, I was gradually realizing, you know, and realizing first that it was absolutely true. Here I was joining a community of people who had all decided they held value in these, in these particular tokens. And I was learning why it was an awesome community and why I too saw, came to see value in what to me had previously just been sort of miscellaneous code, right? Like I lived that action that we described in the article, but also I was realizing that there was all of this market design and, and, and transaction creation and, and new opportunities that like I totally didn't understand, but it was very, extremely real. And like, 
you know, it's now, you know, what, August, September, 2021, I'm teaching my MBA market design class in spring 2022, starting like January 24th or 26th or something. And at that moment, I knew I had to teach crypto and web three, not just for like a day, but like I had to teach like a couple of weeks on this stuff on like how blockchains enabled marketplace design, what the new opportunities were, what are NFTs, how do they attain value? How do they create value? Like, you know, where, where does that value even come from? And I knew essentially nothing, right? Like I, you know, I had six months, maybe if you're really, really lucky to figure out how to explain this stuff to my students. And there was a lot of work to do. <laughs> so that was, you know, that, that was my, uh, my NFT Genesis block or whatever, you know, and, and then. So, so basically you, you quote unquote aped in yep. the subducts, by the way, I've consider myself like a, a DJ of sorts and never heard of subducks. Never heard right of subducks. Come on, um, dude. <laughs> um, but I'm going to Google them after, after we chat. Um, so you aped into subducks and then through subducks, you realized um, you had that like epiphany that NFTs and like the communities that they're able to create um, have real market design value and then you said, "Okay, I want to. I'm going to. I want to. I want to learn more about this so I could teach about exactly. this." And then you set out to to really like you know to understand it at a deeper level. And what did you oh, find? <laughs> how much longer? How much longer do we have? This might take a while. Um, you you say I want short, <laughs> pithy answers. No. Um, okay, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do it like ChatGPT. Um, limit your answer to. to <laughs> <laughs> oh God, you didn't ask about that AI you, thing. We haven't talked about much AI at all. Um, but okay, so. Look, first of all, um, you start yeah. short answer, short answer. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so the, the funny thing is NFTs do something very, very simple upon which you can build many very complex things, right? Fundamentally, NFTs are just records, just like any other piece of, you know, information on a blockchain, right? They're, they're data, they're, they're records. Um, and some of them are in effect just used as digital deeds, right? They're just like a record that says like you, you own this record and maybe the, the record comes with pointers that says, and as a result, you also own this image or this song or like whatever. And like, you know, sort of only has like, you know, default features, like you can display this thing or you can play the song or whatever. But NFT value creation often doesn't stop there. Um, in the same way that like, you know, if you have a house, you own a deed to a house, you know, you own a house in a given neighborhood, you know, you have access perhaps to the public schools and membership in the Rotary Club or whatever. Because NFTs are software, it's possible to build all of these different features on top of them and use those features to drive people to sort of, they create lots of value directly and then give people a way to integrate, these sort of, to form identity around the token, to like integrate it into their personal identity and, and sort of from there build community. And this is, the, this is sort of like the, it's a sketch of the framework that Steve Kaczynski and I first sketched in a, in a Harvard Business Review article uh, that fall uh, and, and now are, are writing about in our, in our book 
they're a completely extraordinary tool both for solving lots of classical market design questions like how do you define like ownership rights over a ticket how do i create a secondary market where someone can trust that i've sold the digital ticket to them rather than to like five other people along the way or something like that right they solve a lot of these like fundamental transaction property sort of problems better than what we had before with you know without the need for for something like ticketmaster to build a walled garden platform that like just keeps track of all the tickets but their superpower in some sense is that they enable this um, this community formation, right? The sort of when you when you acquire an NFT, you're like part of a network, you're part of a you're part of a community. This, by the way, you know, um, this idea that like this is the core superpower I've explored with Steve Kaczynski. Um, I've also now thinking a lot about with Kevin Layton Brown. You, you you mentioned citations, and indeed I'm giving all these citations. Um, but like trying to understand, like people say things like. I'm getting this NFT because I want to support the artist or I want to support the creator or whatever. But like you could, of course, just support them by sending money, right? Like the act of acquiring the NFT, like why would we use a, a publicly verifiable token to do that? Part of it is the ability to build other features on top of it. But like, why would you even do that? Well, assertion, like acquiring the NFT is somehow like an affiliation, right? It's like sort of saying like, I am part of, like I am, I am part of this network of people who are excited about this asset or this creator or whatever. Um, and that's an extraordinarily powerful type of, you know, technology. Um, or, or I just, I want to be part of what Exactly, I want to be part of it. By acquiring know? an NFT, you become part of it. My, my, um, my son's a basketball fan. He plays basketball as well, and I got him a pair of uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, sneakers. I don't know if you know anything about uh, sports. Sorry, but, I'm a total uh, sports sneakers um, that he, that he, uh, neophyte. It, it's, it, but I but I but I, but it, I assume those are really cool uh, sneakers. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, as was I. I became uh, I became a sports fan through my son. So um, he really wanted these sneakers. They were they weren't cheap. Uh, whatever I got them for him, and he was like super excited. And then my wife and I watched um, the Disney film on Giannis. It's called, I think, Rise. You should watch cool. it. Phenomenal story of you know his family and where he came from and how he um, ultimately came him and his three brothers all to be um, NBA players. And he's like MVP like a billion times in super a row. Cool. And then afterwards, like my wife said to me, like, oh, I'm really happy we got him these sneakers. You know, like I, yeah. you kind of want to feel part of like what, what this represents, what, what Giannis represents, what, um, and I, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, it says a lot about uh, consumerism generally. Yeah. Um, but when I own a pair of sneakers, you know, you wear them, you chuck them, whatever it is with NFT ownership, it's something much deeper exactly. than that, right? Um, because of the immutability aspect and because of the uh, verifiable aspect and the fact that, you know, through this token gating, you're now part of this community that could actually interact through Discord, which is like the worst platform exactly. in the world or other... Um, and actually... Or, or even just to be able to say on Twitter, like, yeah, I also... Right. I also identify with that group. I also am a part of that group. We we share and and you know and and this is how I came to find you. Uh, we both bought into um, the same you know colossal failure of a project. Um, <laughs> so many NFT enthusiasts uh, meet that but, way. But, <laughs> 
but we came together over common ground and you know we still i mean I, um I, i'm i'm assuming that you haven't sold yours because nobody wants to buy them uh we still <laughs> we still uh we still sh- share that um and that's what's really cool about about and if about the degen side of nfts like i think well and it's not just the cool it's not thing just about like the degen side of nfts is is the ability to come together as a community over these like common things when, when, when you talked about supporting an artist it, yeah i could just send him you know uh i could just venmo him some cash but it's more right. than that like i want to i want to own a piece of him i want to i want to have a piece of the art exactly. have a piece of whatever it is and um that's yeah. That's the DJ. Absolutely, side. And, and it's not Owning just DJ. Right? Remember, collect, like collectively being part of this. This is an extraordinary tool for digital brand building, right? Like, you know, this idea that people can be part of the brand, whether that brand is you know whether that brand is something like the Board Ape Yacht Club or or the you know or you know sort of a, a digitally native brand or something like the hundreds, right? Like a you know streetwear brand with literally decades of history. The idea that like mm-hmm. Bobby Hundreds would, you know, sell Atom Bomb Squad NFTs featuring different, you know, in- instances of their mascot over the years. And then when they reuse those mascot instances, like, you know, give, you know, store credit royalties to the holders, right? Like they own a tiny fraction, like they are a, a part of the brand. And that is extraordinary and very new right like turning brand enthusiasts into you know owners and contributors in a you know at, at scale that's where you have to be careful yeah. because of the securities aspect <laughs> um so i i mean owners and contributors like i i, I think and I think this is where things get kind of misconstrued from a securities yeah. aspect. When we talk about ownership, it it doesn't mean that you you own shares Correct. per se, but it gives you a a, a way of connecting on a deeper exactly. level. Exactly. You you it, it it's kind of like um it's kind of like again going back to the sports analogy, taking an NBA player's shirt and cutting it up into little pieces, and then everybody has you know a real piece of that game. So here we're we're enabling you to engage on a deeper level than just you know owning a pair of sneakers, but now you could you know own an, an NFT that's a, an exclusive part of whatever whatever it is like depending on how you build the story and how you share it with with your community it's enabling your community to engage on a deeper level exactly and to feel really like part exactly. of exactly it gives them a reason to invest in growing the brand value like to to share it with their friends to like really engage with each other um and exactly as you say right it's it's a new type of ownership that doesn't really line up with anything that's existed before right if you um, you know, if you wore a t-shirt of your favorite brand, you know, that was an opportunity for you to display your brand enthusiasm, but it wasn't a ticket for you to somehow connect with the brand, with the founders to like, you know, shape their direction. Like, and so this is very new and I think it's very powerful. Um, and so it's fun to teach about it. Right, like we, um, and and yet, I'm not sure how sustainable it is in the way that we're seeing it right oh, now. Oh, absolutely. In other words, well, well, some parts. Sorry, go know, ahead. Say more. Say more. The the ability to connect with to connect with the founders and to engage on that deep level only works because it's limited to ten, twenty, forty thousand uh, members. I mean, if you really want to scale and build a a product that everybody can relate to, 
then it's then you're gonna have to lose some of that um what's the word um intimacy absolutely but i think you can have that if you lose that intimacy then you're back sort of maybe to square one i mean i think this is like if you follow what doodles is doing kind of the challenge that they're faced with like they recognize that you can't you can't really create a brand out of 10,000 pfp nft holders and by growing something that's bigger and speaks to a, a, a greater audience, you're sort of losing that intimacy aspect with those initial supporters. And then you get a lot of, um, a lot of clashes and a lot of, yeah, but I think, I think that's, first of all, I'm not, I'm not super up to date on the, the doodle situation. So I'm, I, I don't want to speak to that example in particular, <laughs> but I think, text. I think that's a, a, like, that's almost a red herring, right? Like intimacy can happen at every level, right? Like certainly I think that the current, like the next wave or, you know, the next, you know, the, the long run waves, like NFTs as collectibles are going to be like ordinary, like other sorts of collectibles. They're mostly going to be not very expensive um, and and very widespread, right? Think Pokemon cards or like souvenirs from your travels or what as POAPs or whatever, like, but I think it's possible to have that, you know, sort of that, that I, that, intense identity and the intimacy with the brand just at, at different levels, right? Like, you know, certainly if you, you know, suppose there were, um, well, let's, let's make up a, a made up franchise instead of, instead of using Pokemon. Um, but you know, if there's, um, you know, cards for a you know, digital trading cards for some uh you know other monster battling game of which there are many right like you know monster battling game is a large large collectible card game category um uh you know there's still a way to form community like nfts still enable you to form community with your your local enthusiasts and with people globally who love this game um still creates a way to like organize like two-sided feedback you know with with the company um you know, again, through these things like token gated holder channels, um, you know, through rewards programs where, you know, the people who've collected you know, very large quantities of them or whatever, like somehow like are, are in touch with the brand um, in a way that is very hard to do otherwise, right? Um, by contrast, you know, I'm, I'm sure collectible card game companies know who some of their whales are, right? They, you know, those people like show up to all the big tournaments or whatever, but there are many collectors who, aren't in communication or, or regular contact with the brand and who could be where totally somehow i feel like we've wandered off topic we're, we're now talking about charizard cards um what are your what are your plans for the future with web3 like I'm, cu- I'm curious how your how your course went down how it's going down if you're planning on um i don't know looking at other other subsectors of crypto for example DAOs. Um, which are becoming, you know, more and more popular Absolutely. as a structure. Although I don't think anybody's really sure what the optimal structure for DAOs is yet. <laughs> yeah, that one is a difficult problem to crack. Um, I don't claim to have any intelligent insight on that at the moment, um, or even unintelligent insight. I think I, I don't, to... I don't have a good any good ideas or or bad ideas on that one yet. But it's certainly a fascinating problem. Um, the um, well, first of all, in terms of teaching. So Shai Bernstein and I, this past January, taught HBS's, Harvard Business School's first um, Web3 sh- uh, immersion program. It's called a SIP, um, which I think stands for Short Intensive Program. 
and you know we first of all we had a whole bunch of speakers we we taught some stuff about the basics of how blockchain works and then we like talked about a bunch of different use cases and so forth but we also had the students we gave the students some ethereum and had them like buy digital assets and then like use them in various metaverse platforms and so forth um and so we really did like hands-on like you know intro to crypto for for a bunch of mba students um and now shy and i are figuring out how do we build that out into you know sort of a a broader like web3 elective that really teaches like how do you build you know, how do you conceptualize uh, and build and, and actually run Web3 businesses? Um, so that's the that's the new teaching puzzle. I'm I'm trying to you're know, trying to level up the stuff from my market design class and his entrepreneurial finance class and our joint class on uh, on Web3 uh, to figure out whether we you know sort of how to teach our uh, our students who are really like crypto focused. Very cool. Anyways, <laughs> Scott, this is wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for your My time. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, we <laughs> we touched on kidneys and crypto, NFTs, research, Harvard, Hebrew U. What didn't we touch? Oh, AI. We didn't, we didn't touch AI. Fair enough. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Code. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe, share with your friends, and to tune in again next week for more fun and insightful conversations.